Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Seckham speaks to Lord Peter Hain on imagining a future without corruption. Welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Seckham. As you know by now, the Think Big series is a collection of dialogues with leading speakers, which aims to bring its audiences independent insights that help them formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. In the spotlight today, imagining a future without corruption. Possible in our lifetime? Well, the Right Honourable Lord Peter Hain of Neath has been pretty vocal about his ideas to getting there. He may have served in the governments of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown for 12 years, seven in cabinet. He may have been introduced to the House of Lords in 2015, but he's a born and bred South African and anti-apartheid activist too. And in December 2015, South Africa awarded him the O.R. Tambo National Award in Silver for his excellent contribution to the freedom struggle. He currently stands as Vice President of Action for Southern Africa, and he joins us today. So, Peter, thanks so much for your time. You've been telling South Africans to rise up. In fact, you've said there needs to be a popular uprising to shake the core of the political establishment and for people to stand up against corruption. Where about on the path to that point do you think South Africans are? In a bad way. It's becoming a failed state. I noticed this on a visit very recently, that things don't work, the power cuts, the water cuts the service delivery locally, all this is a sign of a state that is actually failing. And unless it's stopped, unless the corrupt politicians and the incompetent officials are rooted out, this slide will just continue. And I sense with um, South Africans of all colors, of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all religions, a sense of hopelessness that there's nothing they could do about it. And my message uh, the other week to Kingswood, College in Makanda in Grahamstown, uh, where I was speaking about the Neil Agate Memorial Lecture. Uh, he was, of course, an anti-apartheid activist killed in police detention in 1982. I was just saying there is something you can do. And when I say rise up, I don't mean some kind of insurrection, a lawless uh, uprising. I do mean people standing up and saying, no, we won't pay the bribes. We won't uh, take part in this corrupt gravy train because however small it is, it all adds up into something big. And I'm glad you bring that point of clarity there because we've seen the effects of the KZN uprisings, uh, many still trying to recover from that. We've seen the fear that was triggered by the EFF's call for a national shutdown just recently as well. And many would say, you know, is this not a dangerous proposition you're putting on the table calling for a rising up? No, what I'm saying is, when people tell me there's nothing they can do, I think they're wrong. You can refuse to pay the bribe, pay the money to the police officer who stops you somewhere on a spurious traffic offence and then wants money to let you go. You just say no. Yeah. Businesses, and I think business is a centre stage here, businesses can say to local government, to provincial government, to national government, to the politicians, the ministers, whatever position they might be in, the director generals, the uh, officials. No, we're not going to pay to get this contract. Maybe that means you don't get the contract. And that's tough on your business. And it, there could be job implications. 
Uh, and all, all of that is obviously to be weighed. But unless you say no, this will just continue. If businesses say we won't pay the backhanders, then the corrupt politicians won't get the money upon which they have um, been depending. And you can start to turn this around. Yeah. So my, my message was, and I, I say this as somebody who comes into the country, loves a country, but is because of the anti-apartheid struggle, and I was exiled with my parents in 1966 when I was a teenager, had sees South Africa from both uh, the outside, but also feels a bit inside too. And, and that's my frank advice. And uh, a lot of the people I respect uh, in the country of all races and all backgrounds have said to me, well, we think you're right. And I don't say it's easy to do. Obviously, these decisions are difficult. But unless you actually take the tough decisions and maybe make sacrifices in the short term, you aren't going to change anything. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's uh, interesting that you say that or you highlight the fact that you do live outside of the country. So before we take this conversation any further, Peter, and drill into, uh, you know, some of the levers that can be pulled here. What do you say to your critics who say it's easy to advocate for all of this when you're sitting in the UK, that it's easy to live in one country and lecture another on what it should be doing, but that you're out of touch with what's happening on the ground? Well, I'm pretty closely in touch. People don't have to listen to me. Uh, I may be wrong. I may be right. But all I can offer is my honest advice. And I, I, I've had a motto throughout my political life that you try to tell it straight. Sometimes politicians duck and weave, and sometimes you have to uh, you have to navigate difficult terrain, especially if you're a government minister in in Britain, for example. But I think it's also always important to try and tell it straight, and and that's what I've done. Do you think we have a credible opposition, um, you know, in South Africa to topple or at least shock the ruling party as a way to turn the tide? And I go to that, Peter, because coalitions have proven that that's not the most effective way of politicking, and any new force that emerges in South African politics shows how just uh, you know just how hard it is to break into things. It is always hard to break into an existing political system. That's true in Britain as well. We've had a basic two-party, Conservative and Labour, I'm a Labour politician, party system now for well over a century. And occasionally other, other forces, for example, the Liberal Democrats are the third party, make an advance. But usually the two-party system reasserts itself. What is going for South Africa, al along, with, along with a lot of other things, that distinguish the country, for example, from Zimbabwe, which is a failed state, is there is an independent opposition. There is an independent judiciary, mostly. There is an independent media, brave journalists who investigate and, and, and face enormous intimidation and threats. So, and, and the, the, the parties, however, and I don't give any advice on, on what people should vote. That's not for me to do, despite my background. And I've been very absolutely straight up, up about that. Um, you, you do need a credible opposition. Having been in government myself, you have to fear the smell of defeat as a governing party to keep you true. And unfortunately, the ANC, with which I've been associated historically for half a century uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle, has betrayed the legacy of Mandela and Tambo and Susulu and Kathrada and all of those giants. Uh, and it needs to be held to account. And it needs to know that if it carries on 
with its corruption and it carries on with its cronyism and the incompetence, because the incompetence of people doing jobs for which they're simply not qualified, whether it's in ESCOM or whether it's in the water system or Transnet or, or South African Airways, whatever it might be, uh, what these people are doing is bankrupting the country and, and that can't continue. But I, I do think that it's important that vigorous oppositions in, in assert themselves in order to challenge the existing party. And I wouldn't rule out coalitions because some of them have not been very attractive and worked very well. Doesn't mean to say that um, parties of goodwill can't work together in the national interest, because I think that may well have to happen after the next election, but we'll see. Peter, there's another side of the coin to consider here, though, and it's very hard to ignore, right? The voter apathy that's come hand in hand with the frustration. Does that worry you? And how do we start to get people more involved? It does worry me. It's a worldwide phenomenon. It's true in Britain, especially amongst young people. The turnout is very low in the UK uh, at elections from young people, and yet it's their future. If you look at the climate emergency, my generation has betrayed the youth of the future by handing over a planet that is burning. And uh, yet people don't vote because they don't have enough faith. You know, I, th I, I do always say to people that Nelson Mandela and his fellow leadership giants spent the best years of their life in prison to get the vote. And if you don't exercise it, you're betraying that 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 those values and that struggle which involved enormous sacrifice and enormous hardship and death and torture uh, and uh, and banishment and exile and all those things that we know uh, about apartheid's um history uh, and to 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 lose the vote and not to use the vote is i think um a betrayal of that of that tradition i make one other point and this came up again in questions and answers uh, a few weeks ago. People said to me, I don't feel like voting. I just can't vote for anybody. And I said to them in reply, if you do that, all you're doing is depressing the turnout. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily change anything. You don't necessarily change the, the distribution, the, the different proportions of votes that each of the parties get. What you do is you just lower the total but you could even keep the percentages the same. So be careful what you wish for. So given uh, I, that context, Peter, and you know what we're dealing with right now, how much of the answer, realistically speaking, comes with the 2024 elections as you see it? And I guess I'm asking for a bit of a projection view from you. I mean, how do you think things are going to play out politically in 2024 and leading up to that based on your history in politics? Look, I'm not an expert, Alicia, and I think people may think, well, what right has he got to, to make projections like this? But since you've asked me the question, people tell me that it's likely that there will be no overall majority for the governing party. Now, exactly how that works out, what percentages are involved is up to the voters of South Africa. But I do think the country's at a turning point. And I do think people have got to be decisive. And yeah. this is where, in the end, the average citizen has some power. You may feel despairing. You may feel disempowered. You may feel the country is being is sliding into a, a deep, deep, bad spot. The one thing you can do is go and vote. 
Yeah. And so I do urge people to do that and to do whatever they think is right for them and, and right for the country. Like you say, that's one of the levers, right? Another lever that's been pulled already, commissions and inquiries after commissions and inquiries, more often than not, long drawn and at huge cost. But in an attempt, of course, Peter, to bring to the fore some kind of accountability, many had thought that, you know, the Zondo Commission would put the years of corruption behind us. Are they worth the hassle? I think so. It's a sign of a still functioning democratic and constitutional democracy that you have commissions like the Zondo Commission and the Nugent Commission, which looked at Bain and Company and SARS before it. You know, there are lots of other countries in a bad state. I just picked the country to the north of South Africa, Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. They don't hold, hold public inquiries like this. Um, Britain is going through a long drawn out inquiry into the mishandling of the COVID crisis by the current government. But that's going to take a very long time. People are saying it could take years. There was a long inquiry into the invasion of Iraq. It took a long time. It is frustrating. More frustrating, I think, for most people, what people tell me, is that the whole law enforcement system has been so badly hollowed out. And that's exactly what I was going to get to, because a viewer question, Peter, that, uh, you know, that popped up uh, was with corruption so deeply entrenched and what's required to eradicate it. Do you think South Africa has the capacity to effectively deal with corruption, especially if we're looking at a compromised NPA and uh, SAPs and growing crime syndicates as well? You know, so given the depth of corruption in our country, how do we best tackle it, you know, top down or bottom up? both. I've already said how I think people can do it bottom up, not paying the bribe to the police officer, not paying the bribe to the Home Affairs Department official who wants to deport your Zimbabwean employee, who is a vital part of your, your business. Uh, it's hard to do these things. So there's a bottom up approach, but there's also a top down approach. And we need more decisive leadership from the very top of government. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that there are brave and very selfless and extremely capable of people trying to do their best at the top of the National Prosecuting Authority, for example. There are people trying to bring to justice the looters uh, and the criminals and, and the mafia gangsters. And it's a tough job, but it has to be done. And we've seen the assassination very recently of two um, investigators, I think a father and a son, uh, liquidators looking at some of the Gupta uh, companies. So this is these are people who are trying to do the right thing, and they need supporting and protecting. And the police service needs cleaning up as well, and made more competent. What I notice most about the country is the degree of incompetence that increasingly things aren't working. Whether it's the mail service, whether it's the water system, and of course, most notoriously. The, the power system, the electricity system. And you've got to get those things right. And it's not easy and it won't be turned around tomorrow, but you've got to make a start on it and keep pressing the politicians, the president included, to do much better. In fact, that's what you've done in the UK, right? If we look at what you've actioned in the UK, you got Bain banned from all UK government contracts for, what, the next three years because of its involvement in state capture in South Africa. You've said that big business, when they're complicit, need to feel the heat. Any pointers on how we get to that point? You know, effectively putting an end to the, ta the tango. 
Well, I was involved in an anti-corruption conference last month in February at Gibbs, at Pretoria University's business school, Gibbs, where I teach. And it was designed to say to the business community with, if you like, a manifesto, these are the things you can do. And we agreed, there was a, it was about 300 people, mostly from the business sector, agreed that these action points need to be taken forward by the business community. And my message to the business community is, this is a time to really get up and assert yourselves. Most businesses and most business leaders don't really like entering the political world. And I understand that, but things are so serious in the country that unless they do, I don't mean standing for parliament or necessarily getting involved in the nitty gritty of politics themselves, but saying to business, saying to government, you have to change, saying to the politicians, we won't pay you the backhanders, being very clear about that and saying to business organizations, these are the standards we expect from top to bottom in our own companies. So yeah. there are all things we can each do. And I think it's got to the point where the system has been so uh, as failing everybody that people have got to insert them, assert themselves uh, as they did in the anti-apartheid struggle decades ago. Yeah. Let's home in, Peter, on enforcement, because you've been emphatic about that, that that is a, you know, a sticking point that we need to get more of a handle on. Surely we need to see more of a coming together of governments, you know, more collaborative action and global muscle come into play as well. How do we build um, international solidarity in the fight against corruption? This is very important, and it's something that I have spoken about and uh, argued for which is that governments, including the British government, which says it's anti-corruption, says it's anti-money laundering and has quite tough uh, legislation to that effect. But actually, a lot of the Gupta money moves through London, as it did through Dubai and Hong Kong and other centers of financial centers of the world. Until governments say, until governments start walking the walk mm -hmm. and not just talking the talk, you're not going to be able to stop this. Can I just add one other thing? I've been pretty critical about what's been going on, but what I'm also very struck by is the enormous energy that there is in South Africa. I mentioned that I teach at Pretoria University's Business School Gibbs. When I teach those students, MBA students, young executives wanting to, to, to do better in their companies, I'm really impressed by the talent. Everybody is bright. Everybody is, um, you know, there's enormous talent in this country. Uh, and, and and don't forget that. And there's also a lot going for you. You know, you've got, you've still got the elements of basic, uh, good infrastructure, by far the best in, in Africa. It has been disabled and it has been damaged by looting and corruption and cronyism and incompetence. And that has to be dealt with. But in fact, we've seen it in South Africa's banking system, right? The financial arena, because we were once lauded for, uh, you know, having the most robust financial institutional uh, capacity uh, globally. And, uh, you know, recently we've seen banks fail abysmally in their duty to prevent, detect, report financial irregularities and suspected financial crime. Um, you know, and this including money laundering on a vast scale that saw billions of looted rand flow through digital. Uh, Digital pipelines. Does South Africa bring a grey listed, Peter, force us to get our house in order to the extent that it can be? Well, yes. And it's another, it's, it's like, you know, being downgraded in the credit ratings. Uh, yes, it, it does. But 
you know, this keeps happening to the country and it doesn't seem there's an urgency to do anything about it from the top of government. And you're right that um, the financial system of regulation in South Africa, despite state capture and despite the looting and the money laundering, has been one of the best in the world. You escaped the international global banking crisis, the credit crunch of 2008, um, when Britain was massively damaged by it. So was America. So was mo most European states. South Africa was affected in the sense that it's part of the global economy and therefore it got damaged by the failures in Britain and other countries. But its own banking system was much more robust than Britain's was, for example. So, you know, I think a lot of credit is due for that. And it's another one of the things that that is is a good part of South Africa. And remember, until uh, President Zuma came along uh, and all that's followed, South Africa was regarded as the fifth best country in the world in which to do business. So it's still possible to climb back up to that height if everybody's determined to do it. And uh, I hope that that will happen. So bottom line, Peter, while bribery and corruption may have been institutionalized under Zuma, it's still happening now. Um, events like the Palapala Pala scandal emerging, Andre Dereta's swift exit after his interview exposing alleged corruption, you know, running into trillions at ESCOM, South Africa being grey listed as well. The question is, is a corruption free South Africa possible in our lifetime? You're saying yes. I think it's possible if everybody makes an absolutely determined push from the bottom of the of the society to the top to eradicate it. It's very hard, but it's very hard to do, but it is doable because this country has got so much talent and so much energy uh, and and so much going for it that you can do it if you really want to. But you've got to be prepared to want to and to make the sacrifices that were made in the anti-apartheid struggle. You know, it wasn't just the leaders who won that battle. It was ordinary citizens who rose up. And in a sense, that's what got to happen now uh, to, to get rid of corruption and the looting and, and re-establish the country as, 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 a, as, as a model for the rest of the world that everybody admires, as was the case under Nelson Mandela, but sadly is no longer so. Yeah. And if we reap success there, how quickly do you see this turning the taps on confidence and a release of capital into the South African economy? It depends how quickly and how determinedly it's done from every sector, the business sector, the educational sector, and above all, the government sector. It really depends on whether there is the determination to do it. And, you know, you, you cannot rely on politicians at the top to do this. They become like it, they become like addicts to uh, putting their, their hands in the till. Uh, and it, you, you know, once you're an addict, it's very hard to win yourself off it. So these politicians have got to be given a kicking, both in the voting, in the voting booths and also in other ways by refusing to pay them if they want a backhander to give you something you, you're aiming for. Yeah. 
Well, Peter, thanks so much for your time today for joining us on the Think Big series. It's been a pleasure catching up. And to our audience, remember that this webinar is now available via podcast. So keep the conversation going. The social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG. The series is free. It's shareable. It's open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. And as always, we welcome your feedback. So communicate with us and look out for the next speaker in the Think Big series.